are in 1 John, and we're going to actually kind of round out a little bit of, of where we were last week. So let me just give you a quick picture. First, for those guys who are up here taking notes, I'm going to remind you of what we, what we studied last week. Give you a little sense of that because it's important to understand what we're studying this week. We've been going through 1 John. We're finding out what the nature of authentic faith looks like. And, um, and last week we hit a very important thing. Because what John wants is that he wants these people, and, and, and he also wants us then, to be able to have this confidence that we've got an authentic faith. A faith that will matter. A faith that will matter that, because every single one of us, let's not be a downer, I know we just finished Thanksgiving, but you know, and this is the first Sunday of Christmas, so everything's supposed to be really encouraging from here on, but let's just face reality. All of us someday will die. And at that moment, when we come to that point, I've had the chance to sit with a few people as they've passed out of this life into the next. And it's a weighty, And yet it's also a joyful responsibility because what do we want for them? At that moment, I promise you, they're not sitting there saying, boy, I really wish that I had the latest video game system. That would have made my life great. And and I can also promise you at that moment that they're not really worried about how they look or whether or not they put on an extra 10 pounds during Thanksgiving. It's not their concern. What their concern, what the weight that is on them is a concern to say, what? does the future hold for me? And there's a, there's a battle that often goes on when someone is transitioning from this life to the next. So I, I love the privilege of being with somebody when that happens. To be able to remind them, this is all my hope and stay. To be able to point them to who Jesus is. To remind them of the faith that they have lived out for all of these years, or to invite them to embrace faith now. But there can be a battle. And I promise you, when you or I are in that place, at that moment it will weigh so much more than how, think, how much money I saved on a TV you know, on Friday. It's going to weigh far more than that to know, do I have an authentic faith? And what John wants to give us are are three key ways that we can be confident, that we can be hopeful, that we can be joyful. Not because we look at it and we say, well, I'm a perfect person. But instead, so we can say, here are these three things. So the three things that he goes through uh, are are these. Number one, do do we make confession? He used this specific term, confession, this public proclamation that says... Jesus is fully God, come as fully man to give his life as a sacrifice to rescue us from sin's penalty. And and do I not just know that, but do I confess that? Does that become clear? Do I speak that? Is that evident? Baptism for us as a church is one of the most clear ways that we make that confession. Okay? Okay? It's not even walking an aisle. You'll notice that we don't do that very often here. It's very, very rare. Why? Because we think that there are stronger images. There are stronger pictures. There's weightier images. And the biblical picture has always been that baptism is that strongest picture. 
Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing that, that he goes through is, do you continue to see a, a progression in holiness? Is your life changing? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus? Do you love the things that God loves because you love God? Not perfect, but do you see transformation? There should be a change in holiness for us. The third thing that we get to see is going to be important today, especially. Uh, and, and again, these tumble through the whole book. But the third one is what? Do we love God's family? Do you love God's family? Here's what we saw last week. Okay, so for you guys who are taking notes, uh, especially for my fourth through sixth graders, right? You guys are are up here, supposed to be taking notes, because next week you're going to be talking about these with Mr. Irish downstairs. So what I want you to get is this. You need to write this down. Um, They asked the question last week in 1 John chapter 5, How do I know if I love God's family? How do I know if I love God's family? And we found a surprising answer. It was in verses 2 and 3. He says this, uh, 1 John 5, verse 2. By this, we know that we love the children of God. This is how we know we love God's family. When we love God and obey his commandments. Would that have been the first answer most of us would give if someone said, how do you know you love God? your church family. In in this day and age, how do you know that you love the people around you? Most of us would automatically go to what? To heart. Most of us would go to affections. Most of us would go to, how do I feel about you, you people? (laughs) It depends probably even how you you finish that sentence. How do I feel about you? What's the, the, is there a groan? Is there a grunt? Or is there there like a, a... a smile that follows. That might be where most of us would go. But instead, John gives us a very interesting thing. He says, the way that we know that we love the children of God is when we love God and obey his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That seems like it has nothing to do with loving the children of God. But last week we looked at that. We said, how do I know I love God's family? And we gave this answer. If by faith, and he's going to talk about that in verse 5. We saw that last week. If by faith, out of trusting God, if I love God and I find his calling on my life not to be a burden, and instead, if I find life by loving God, That's how I know I love the children of God. So again, how do I know I love God's family? If by faith I love God and I find his calling, what he wants me to be, the way he calls me to live, not to be a burden. Now that is not the way most of us see our lives, is it? In this day and age? Am I I right or wrong? Is that the way most of us would have defined it? If you were writing a book and somebody said, would you write an article on how to love people? I think this is a different answer. Here's the basic picture of what's going on. Instead of defining my love by how I feel about you or how easy, I think for most of us, it tends to be, how easy is it for me to get along with you? That, That tends to be the baseline of how we decide love in this culture in this day and age do i find it simple do i find it easy do i find it 
you know, is it like rolling, like falling down? You know, is it just something that happens to me? It's easy to love you because, you know, I just, bam, I fall into it. And, and we get along really great. Now, that's not the secret for every great long-term marriage, is it? No. <laughs> we, we know that every good long-term marriage is not based on that because that would mean that most long-term marriages would be like 18 months in, in our current culture, Okay. It's just not the way it goes. Instead, what he says is, by faith, if I trust God, if I believe God. Remember, he said, this is the victory. Who is it that overcomes the world? He says in verse 4, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. In other words, we have a different way of approaching life. We have a different way of approaching what marriage looks like, what it looks like to, to, to love our kids. And what it means to love each other inside of this church family and also recognizing that this church family extends beyond just this building. God is working in so many great places beside just Wyndham Baptist. And for that, we're thankful. How do I know I love? Well, he says, we, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. It's faith. Our faith. So faith means I believe God that what he says is true, the way he says that I should live, what he says he is for me, when I believe him. That is what helps me overcome the way that most people see the world. It gives me a different kind of life. So by faith, in this definition... The way that I can know that I love other people is if by faith I love God. If by faith, because it's not always easy every day, it's not automatic for me every day to sit there and go, wow, Jesus is all I need. You can take my money. You can take my health. You can take my job. You can take all of these things, but if I have Jesus, if I have a connection to the living God, I have more than I could ever hope for. And some of you guys are walking through that, so you know what I mean. That's why it takes faith. This is not an easy thing to do. This is not just that things went well for me. There's a whole brand of Christianity. Um, Yesterday, I think it was, the founder of the largest Christian television network, passed away and what's the hallmark of that largest television of christian television network health and wealth prosperity gospel theology if god loves you and you love god then everything will go well for you and you'll make money and it has seeped into our into our lives it's just an american ideal okay that's being embraced all around the world Instead, what he's saying is, hey, if by faith, if you trust God, you believe God, even when things aren't going well for you, we believe that. Do I love God? Do I find my life in God? And with great reason. Psalm 1611, right? In his presence is fullness of joy. And in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can take from me everything. And what do I have? I have have a relationship with the one who is eternally satisfying. The one I will never, ever grow bored with, but instead will discover day in and day out who he is. 
and it will grow infinitely. It will, it will get better as time goes along. That's going to take faith to believe that, right? Because if on Christmas Day I don't get the present that I hoped I would get, or if the present I give to somebody else that I was hoping would finally secure you know, their love, they would finally give me the response that I was always hoping for. I don't get that. Guess what? I'm not crushed. That comes by faith. So our definition of love so far is to sit there and say, okay, if by faith I love God. In other words, I find God to be growing as the treasure of my life. But there's a second part to this, right? The way I know that God's becoming the treasure of my life is that it's not a burden for me anymore. I love him. I trust him. When my heavenly father, when my dad says, hey, son, listen to me, stick this out. I know he wants good for me. So I'm going to do that. I know he's not being cruel. I know he's not being mean. I use this illustration all the time, but parents with our kids, right? If you've got sons and your sons go to school, you probably have the same kind of conversations that we have at times, right? Stick it out, buddy. I know this is painful. I know this is not the most fun, but I promise you it's really good for you. I wouldn't have you do it if it wasn't. How about vegetables, right? You know, eating food that kids ought to eat, things that are actually good for them. How about not just sitting in front of the TV all day? Because we know these are the natural things that, you know, like a 10-year-old would sit there and go, this is what I want to do with my life. This is what I would love to do. Netflix, an unending list of shows that I can watch and I can be the god of. And instead, as a dad, we sit there and go, no, there's more to life than this. Trust me. So that's the faith part, right? That's the illustration of it. What's the second part? Not only do I continue to grow in my love for who God is, I love others when I help them do the same. Because I love God, because I find Jesus to be my life, I engage in helping others to do the same. So that means husbands with wives. That means like fathers, mothers with their children. That means, though, in this context, and it's very important for us to see it, it's not just DNA. It also means that as a church family, I love God's family when I am willing to help you see and savor Jesus as the greatest treasure of your life. That's what it means to love God's family. That's what he's talking about when he sits there and says, hey, how do I know that I've loved the children of God? Verse 2, when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Throughout the book, he's been calling us to say, listen, help each other. That's how you know you love God. That's how you know you love God's people. This third assuring characteristic is when you can sit there and say, you know what? When I meet with people, when I talk with people, 
I love to tell them who God is. When someone's struggling, out of the inflow of what I'm learning about God and what I'm trusting about God, about who God is, the outflow can't help but happen is that other people around me are being reminded and encouraged to follow and love Jesus. What I want to do is I want to take that today and I just want to push on this because I want us to see one or two key things about this. Probably the one key thing that I want us to see is Let's ask this question this way. Who is John writing to here? If you've been with us for a little while, is he writing to the elders of the church? Who's he writing to? This is for the entire church family, isn't it? He's not addressed this to leaders. So this isn't a leadership study. He's not saying, okay, elders, elders and, you know, Elders slash pastors, it's the same term. Elders slash pastors should do this for people. They should be these super holy guys who walk around and you just love Jesus more because you've been around with them. They should be. But he's writing to everyone here. What he's doing is he's putting this burden on everyone else. So last week is what we just talked about. What I want us to see today is that this is a shared passion. So guys, if you're taking notes, you should probably write that phrase down. A shared passion. This is a shared passion, a shared conviction. This is a shared responsibility. A shared passion. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rat her out a little bit here, but Patsy has just finished memorizing the entire book of James. So if you want something valuable to do, and I think that's awesome. Okay, she memorized the entire book, and that is not an easy thing to do, but she just memorized it, so, you know, again, I get to say that because I, I know about these things. So, but, but she was just reminding me, after we talked last week, she pointed out to me, boy, just like in James chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, turn over to James chapter 5. Kids, if you're writing down notes, you might want to write this, these verses down. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. There's this shared responsibility. There's this shared passion. In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This isn't just leaders. This is a lifestyle. How do you know that you love the children of God? How do you know that you love your brothers or sisters? Is it because you can't wait to get to go to to gather worship together? Not necessarily. I realize that we do 9 a.m. That is not an easy hour for a lot of people. We'll just be straight up about that. Okay? It, it's a hard hour. That's why it's always like 9.05 before people even, you know, like half the people flow in. There's a couple of you who are super dedicated. You get here at 9. Thank you for that. And may your tribe increase, okay? But, but 
It's not that. That's not what tells me. It's not when I come in and go, I can't wait to see who's leading music today because I love the music. That's not what tells us whether or not we love the children of God. What tells us whether we love the children of God is whether I am nurturing my soul on who Jesus is so much so that I can't wait to get to do the same for you. And one of the big tests of that is this. What happens when somebody that you know and love begins to walk away from Jesus. Maybe it's little ways, maybe it's large ways, but remember the context of 1 John, right? In 1 John, what happened? In 1 John, there was a whole group of people who left the church because they began to teach that Jesus, they wouldn't make the confession that Jesus was God. They didn't see holiness. Instead, they saw holiness as optional and not even important, and they didn't love people. They didn't love God's people, especially this way. They were very holy people. They were very uh, important people, very influential people. But John says they weren't Christians. That's weighty. What I want to just kind of look at today is actually in Matthew chapter 18. So let's flip back there if you've got your Bible. Matthew chapter 18. Again, kids writing notes, that would be a good one to write down because this can be the the main place we're going to look at for a little bit here today. Matthew chapter 18. And I want to show you why this has to do with Advent in a second. Here's this shared passion. We just read from James, right? We, we see here that there's this calling to, um, to love the brothers, and to love the brothers means that I love God, and then I, I, I love God so much that the commands, the, rule, the things that he puts on to me are not a burden, and you're not a burden for me. In the same way, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to see this because this is where it gets challenging. What happens when someone doesn't want me to point them to Jesus. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had a believer around you who sits there and goes, well, I just don't like this church anymore. I'm leaving. If this is a shared passion, if this is a responsibility, it's, it's a non-burden, we get to be a part of this work in each other's lives. How do I do it? That's why we need to talk about this, because this is not the easy, fun topic. This is not just the, hey, look, here's a donkey, here's a a camel, here's little baby Jesus, you know, in his golden fleece diaper. You know, it's not that. Instead, this is the fact that God says, hey, here's your privilege. This isn't a burden. This is a joy. That's why we read James. When we get to be part of this and it turns somebody back from there, we get to help be part of saving them rescuing them, coming back from their wanderings. It's weighty for us. It's important for us. So in in Matthew 18, look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've helped bring him back from his wanderings. 
Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And then he's going to have this this phrase, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um. I'll give you a quick explanation of that. But but let's just look at this. Here's this shared responsibility, this shared passion. Each one of us will see others around us that God will put onto your radar. You'll see something in their life. It's not something that the elders even see yet. But there's this responsibility, this joyful responsibility, this shared passion to say, I love God. I want to help you find out that your love and your life is in God. You're not going to find it at the mall. You're not going to find it in that food. You're not going to find it in that drink. You're not going to find it in that relationship. So we go after people. I want us to see in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, What's the first way that this gets done? It's done privately. It's done by the person who sees it. It's done by the person who's close to them. Why? Because the gospel is the everyday context of our lives. And what is discipline? What what word does that also tie with? It ties with disciple. We're here to be disciples of Jesus. Discipline is not a negative. For a lot of people in their churches, their background, discipline becomes this this part when we're going to get to to part three and part four. That's when somebody is brought before the elders in part three so that the elders are made aware of what's going on. And then part four, the time that we see discipline most clearly are those few, few times where we have to actually bring somebody before the church family. And talk about this with them. Most of discipline happens way behind the scenes. It's done privately and most of it is so effective. It never ever gets before the church. The problem is, is when we don't do it. When we, when we see a need and we don't speak towards that need. That means what? I don't love you enough to risk my comfort zones. It means I don't love you enough to ask you, hey, what's going on? Discipline is not red-faced, angry, I've come to yell at you. Okay, let me ask you what you're doing, then I'm not going to listen to you, I'm just going to lecture you instead. Parents, does that work well for discipline? It may be what we've experienced in our past, okay? I'm going to be quite honest about that. But that's not what we know discipline ought to be. Instead, it's done privately. What's the purpose of church discipline? Notice when we say church, again, it's not this building. Church is who? Who's the church? Yeah, raise your hand. I'm I'm the church. So church discipline means each of us helping each other. So this discipline... When, when we, what does he looked at in verse uh, 15? Hey, if you go to your brother, if he listens to you, you, you have won your brother over. What does that tell us about the purpose of discipline? 
Yeah, it's all about restoration, isn't it? It's like Scott's job, right, as a dentist. Some people fear going to the dentist. Now, you should never fear, right? Especially if you go to Scott. So I'm going to just give you a plug, restorative anesthetic, dental, right? Go right there because he's like the greatest dentist I've ever known in my life. He's awesome. But what's his ideal? His ideal, Scott is not a masochist who just likes drilling people's teeth, okay? Scott is actually a guy who actually loves people and wants them to be healthy. When you go to the doctor, okay, young guys, if you're 20, go to the doctor. Just go, okay, because you haven't been there in probably, what, four, five, six years, maybe eight. Um, you need to go, okay? Why? What does a doctor want for you? He wants to keep you healthy. In the same way, this process is all about restoration. When you have this, this word one, it means reclaiming a person of value who once was lost. James said that they were wandering. It's helping bring them back from their wanderings. Here's what um, one of the books that we've used. Uh, uh, some guys at Sojourn have been really helpful for us. It just says this. The scriptures command us to first deal with one another in private. Such gospel confrontation, these rebukes, these warnings, these encouragements should be taking place in our everyday relationships and in various gatherings and should reflect the ongoing informal church discipline. Such intentional redemptive relationships reflect a pervasive gospel ministry of the word that serves as the primary means for building up the church in love. In other words, this is why every single one of you needs an intentionally, you need a few intentionally intrusive relationships in your life. People who are not waiting for you to say, hey, I have a problem, can you help me? But people who love you, people who know you, people who ask questions of your life, people who understand your story, and people who are aware of your sin. Do you have that? You need that. It is so easy for us not to want that. Kids, what do we, what do, we do with our parents? Too often we pull back and hide from them. We don't want... Because we know maybe there's an area I'm struggling with. There's an area that I'm in. And the worst thing would be for my parents to find out. Is that true? No, exactly the opposite. So often it is the absolute love of God to sit there and say, I'm going to let other people find out where you're struggling right now. I'm going to bring it into the view. Does it feel terrible? Absolutely. Does it feel like a building fell on your head? Absolutely. It feels terrifying. But to experience love, to have someone who can be with you so that this sin no longer remains in the dark, but now becomes light. Someone who reminds you who you are, who Jesus is for you. Unfortunately, this is far too rare to the experience inside of our churches. And unfortunately, one of the reasons for that is that too many of us think, I don't want to mess with your stuff. I don't want to have to walk into that mess. I don't know how to handle this. I am just going to cover my eyes when I see this. Someday I'll ask you about that. 
how do we know we love the children of God? You see why this is so important? This is weighty. I recognize that. I grow in assurance of my faith when I love you enough to actually ask questions of your life. To pursue you. Why? To lay aside what I feel like doing for an evening to actually come and, and, and lay aside what you're going to do for an evening? That's love. Now, this is not some strong-handed thing where we sit there and go, hey, you shouldn't wear the color yellow. Uh, this isn't something where we walk in there and say, hey, God doesn't like people who, I mean, you know, th- there's just this whole list. We've heard about these heavy-handed things where people are just controlling. People walk in and say, um, you know, th- that the church leadership becomes this overarching thing that says who can date and who can't date, all these types of things. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about this here, probably in its greatest form, is when older women love younger women and walk with life with them. When, when younger women uh, love, you know, reach out to older women and ask them to walk in their life. When younger men ask older men, older men, younger men, but also peers. It's being honest. It's being transparent. It's saying, hey, this is where I'm struggling today. I know this morning I have a bad attitude. And I need somebody to help remind me why this attitude is wrong. Because I've told myself four times, and I actually need just to hear it from somebody else. The gospel's meant to be done that way. That's what Matthew is writing. That's what Jesus is saying, guys. This is what we were made for. So let me just list out a couple of these things that we would want to do. If you were going to talk to somebody like that, Paul Tripp gives us four kind of things that we would want to think about. First, consideration. What does God want this person to see? What does God want them to see about themselves? What does God want them to see about who God is for them? What does God want them to see about others? What does God want them to see about their life? What does God want them to understand about truth? What does God want them to understand about change? Ask questions. We don't walk in there and say, you've got a bad attitude. We ask questions. We need to understand. We need to engage them in discussion. And we need to be asking, God, what do you want me to see so that I can help them see it too? Because you know what? There are a few people walking around thinking, I'm pulling back from relationships just because they feel like it. It's probably because they've been hurt a lot. The goal is not to walk in there and say, you're bad because you don't. Instead, it's to go and engage and discuss and find out, hey, what is going on? My preconceptions are wrong, so let me listen to you. But I realize on a watch, that takes a while. What's easier? What's way more efficient for my time schedule? How do I get back to my football game? Well, I just tell you where you're wrong. That takes like five minutes. And the more angry I get about it, the faster it goes, and the more I really think I've just changed you. How how helpful has it ever been to have somebody lecture you? I don't know, anybody 
Anybody sit there and go, wow, greatest times of my life have been when I've been lectured. That really just changed me. That helped me the, the most. Tripp says, hey, go with consideration. The, the second thing is confession. What does God want that person to admit? What does he want them to confess? What things do I need to confess? Am I even going to you because I love God? Or am I going to you because now I need to make God love me? Consider it confession. Commitment. What's the new way of living that God wants this person to live out and, you know, to do it by faith? And what's possible for them? Change. How should these new commitments be applied to daily living by the grace of God for me and for the other person? What would it look like? What would that change look like? Imagine if we just prayerfully approached the people in our lives, the people in our circles, and just said, God, is there anything in their life that they need to understand about you? And is there any way I could help them understand that? How would that revolutionize your prayer life? Instead of, God, can you just make them stop it? What if we were able to just say, God, hey, I'm, I'm praying through. My, for, my, for my kids, God, where is it that they need to know you? And how can I help them to do that? Is there any place that they don't understand you well? Have I, have I given them a wrong picture of who you are? couple other things that we should think through. Hey, choose your words wisely. Choose your words, your, 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 your whole demeanor wisely, right? And then we're going to have to carve out some time for this. How much time will it take to be able to deal with this in an unrushed kind of way? If I want to be like McDonald's of discipline with you, Sorry, I know a lot of you who have worked at McDonald's, and some of you might still, okay? But is that, is that what we're aspiring to? Boy, I really would like to be the McDouble of Christian relationships. I just, you don't see many books written on that, right? Most of us are shooting a lot. Is there enough time? I understand that some of us have been so hurt by others in this process. Or the only time anyone has ever spoken to us is to say, you're wrong. Let's change that. Okay? If I love God's people, it means that I make time to be with God's people, to know God's people, and to have these conversations with God's people. There are a couple other things in here. Let's just quickly show you this. Number one, um, the second one is in verse 16. If I go to you and you don't respond, if you don't sit there and go, hey, thank you. There are some more steps. If you do say thank you, what do we do? Yeah, we follow up, we walk with, we encourage, we help. We don't drag somebody in the front. We don't. There's a lot of times inside of this church where we all struggle. We all make mistakes. We all sin. And people go to other people and they say, hey, I see this in your life. Please don't do this. 
They say, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry. We, we've had incredible images. I mean, even with Josh, of standing up to say, this is who I am. This is my sin, I'm asking for help. And what do we do when that happens? We embrace. We love. We walk with people. It costs us time. We want that. So please just get that down. When, when, when discipline, when someone's responsive and they're, and they're moving and they're making changes, man, it's love, it's embracing it's sacrificing to help them keep making movement on this. We want them. To, we want every single person in here to be successful. We want you to love Jesus. If they don't. Remember what we talked about? This is faith. A lot of this now starts to go against the way that we would do it, especially in this culture. But Jesus says in the next verse, verse 16, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established. Now I bring some other people with me. Involve, select others. If the person refuses to listen as a result of the private one-on-one confrontation, despite multiple attempts and variety of approaches, then we take the next next step in discipline. Notice that there's multiple attempts. A variety of ways. Notice this isn't a letter. This is connecting. But if they don't, at that point, notice we haven't gone to the elders yet. Instead, in wisdom, we invite somebody else, one or two other people, into the process, mutually agreeing. That means that we can talk about where somebody's at with somebody else and not have it gossip. But the way we know it's not gossip is because we're saying together, let's go help. Gossip is when we talk about somebody, but we don't have any intention of helping them, of doing anything about it. We're just talking about them. This instead is saying, let's partner together. I need your help. You're wise. Could you just come in and make sure that I'm speaking lovingly? Could you come into this conversation and make sure that that I'm hearing them well? Because sometimes we don't hear well, right? We invite somebody else. Sometimes it's inside of our missional community. If it happens in there, what do I do? I invite in one of the missional community leaders at that point to help us, to make sure. Because I want to make sure that... um, that this is spoken in love. I want to make sure that it actually is a sin that we're talking about, not just that you and I are wired differently. I want to make sure that the person listened and actually repented, right? I want to make sure that um, it was done according to the gospel. I need help to do that. So you can see Jesus is saying, listen, bring somebody with you. After you've tried to reach out to them, bring somebody else with you. Now, I also have to say this. Biblically, we have the right to invite somebody into this process even if that other person doesn't want it. Right? This is the faith part. This is where it gets dangerous. I understand that. That person may never speak to us again. That's the risk, right? So when we love... But do we invite them into the process? I'm going to have to believe that God knows what he's talking about. I'm going to have to believe God because this doesn't go the way that I think life should go. 
but I invite somebody else into the process with me. What does he say then in verse 17? The first part of 17, he says, okay, if that person refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. Literally, this is where he's saying, come to the elders at this point. This is where you come to the elders. You tell it to the leaders. Um, if that unrepentant person refuses to listen after those steps one and two of church discipline have been there, then we inform the elders and we bring them in. That's this whole um, bind on earth, so we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is why we live in community and God gives us structures. And the concept here is that the leadership of the church has the right to bind, to release, to say, hey, what you're doing is not right. This is what happened in 1 John. The leadership had to say, what you're doing is not right. What you're doing is not godly. That's why elders, one of their key responsibilities is to protect the flock, to decide what is right doctrine. That's why we joyfully live underneath that umbrella because we need that. That's why elders get paid the big bucks, right? Yeah. But, but that's their responsibility. That's why you need to be praying for your elders regularly. The weight of this. Notice when it comes to the elders, the elders are going to be part of that conversation then with that person. But at this point, how many other people inside the church know? What, two, three, four people? We, we've not gotten to the point where we stand and parade people in front of the group and say, that's what's wrong with you, right? That's not what we do. But there is a fourth step. When someone's not responsive to the elders, they're not responsive to these people who love them, there is a fourth step. And what he says here is, uh, again, in verse 18, uh, he's, in verse 17, the second half, if he refuses to listen even to the church then, if he doesn't listen to the elders, the leadership of the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. Now, this really goes against our whole grain. And we've had people leave our church because in the very few times that we've had to get to this point with somebody, They've sat there and said, no, that's wrong. What I'm just pointing us to is to say, hey, that term pagan right here, it's used to refer to Gentiles, to people who did not know God. That term um, tax collector, it was used to refer to a Jew who was a complete outcast, a traitor to his own people. Bottom line, a person who once professed faith in Christ but currently refuses to repent is going to be treated like an outsider and not like a brother or sister in Christ. This is really rare. But this is what happened here in John's, in John's letter. This is the context of this letter. So John is clearly thinking of this same thing. And there are very few cases, but there are important cases where we have to sit there and go, okay, God, that seems like that would do the exact opposite in this day and age of what we would want. God, how in the world is that going to work? But in those few cases, we have to really do that. And that's something that we would only communicate with our members. It's not something we would talk about on a Sunday morning. Shame is not the thing that changes people. Discipline is not about shame. The gospel changes people. 
But here's where it hits into your life. Again, since this is the shared passion, all of us are responsible for this. You might be friends with that person. Whether Facebook friends or come over and let's have lunch type friends. How do I faithfully live this out with them? Because that creates a tension for me. And for some of us, what we've said is, well, I'm just going to treat them in a loving way, unlike the church does. <laughs> did you just hear what I said? What did John say was the definition of loving? To love God and find His commandments not to be a burden. Instead, faith. In the same way, what I'm saying to you is, there's some things that God's going to say, this is what you should do. And we're going to say, God, I don't see how that works. And He's going to say, trust me. Trust me. It may very well be that in our lives we have to look at a friend who, you know, we run into them. And we know that, um, you know, they invite us over. They sit there and say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come over? Let's get together sometime. Let's hang out. We might have to say to them, you know what, I appreciate the invitation. I really do. But you and I both know that you're under discipline from the church and you haven't repented. You haven't repented. I would like together though. I, I I would like to get together with you though. But I want to talk about your situation in light of the gospel. That's what I want to talk about. I want to encourage you to repent. I want to help you to see the way that you should change. This is not easy. But this is what flows out of a heart of love. If I really find, you can see why John said what he said though. If I really sit there and go, I found life. I have found the source of all life. I know what is so precious because I've tasted, I've seen, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I want you to try him. I want you to taste this. I want you to touch. I want you to feel this. I want you to experience this. How could, we, how could we settle to say to somebody else, well, okay, well, why don't you seek what makes you happy? We couldn't. Instead, we would beg with them and plead with them and say, please, please, you've got to try this. This is where life is at. So I just want to challenge us. This is a, a, a it's a challenging responsibility to build a life where instead of being disconnected and we just show up on Sundays, we actually interact with people and let them know where we're at. And we actually make time to be part of their life too. I know being intrusive is like one of the worst sins in New England. But we're meant for love. So how does this all tie to Advent? Because we're going to have we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a second, but it is the first Sunday of Advent. Here's how I see it tying together with Advent. Advent is when God came to say I want to restore you. You've been separated, you've been broken, you've been distanced 
God essentially moved from where I was right there in your presence now to 400 years where there was no communication from God at all. That's the story of the Old Testament. But God said, I'm not going to leave it that way. I'm going to come. I'm going to be this one small flickering light in a world of darkness. Why? Because God said, I love you so much, I want you to have life, and I can't keep myself from you. I can't. That would be sin. So I have to come. I have to let you taste life. That's what Advent's about. Because God came to us, He didn't always speak what we wanted to hear, did he? But he told us the truth. The way this passage ties in with Advent is, if that's who God is, then that's who we should be too. To come, to appeal in weakness, in humility, in smallness, and yet in great love and with truth to say, hey, I want you to experience life. Please, please experience life. That's what communion's all about. Communion is that symbol where Jesus said, Hey, I've broken my body for you. This is the new covenant in my blood which was shed for you. I have created a rescue plan. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to set you free. I want to take you out of prison. He said, this is a reminder of that. So come with me. Be with me. That's what Jesus said. So as we come to the table today, uh, I'm going to invite Mike and the team to come up here. Um, We come together and we do things a little differently uh, often here. And the little differently part for us is that we, we celebrate communion in two different uh, forms. And today we're going to do what we call our station setup. The idea is that we don't want you to be alone. There's a great symbol when we pass the trays around because it shows s- servants that are, are, are serving you. But there's another where we say, in a moment we'll begin to sing, we'll stand to sing. And then when you're ready, you can come and you can break some of the bread off here and, and dip it in a cup. And then with a small group of people, five, six, seven people, if one of you would just remind us, remind each other, hey, this is the body of Christ which was broken for you and this is the blood of Christ which was given for the redemption, for, for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to say it exactly that way, but you have the opportunity to say that to each other. Someone could come into that group and say, look, would you pray for me? I feel so alone today. My sin has just weighed me down. Someone else may come into there just to say, hey, I don't know anybody. (laughs) That's why we encourage you not to go alone. That's why I encourage you to be intentionally intrusive and to invite people to be with you. Now, if they're there praying, you may wait. And hey, you know what? Again, that may not fit your time schedule, but that's okay. 
because you can wait for them. And then you can come and ask them if they want to go with you. It's an opportunity to serve. It emphasizes that shared responsibility, the shared passion. And we, we've got stations set up in three different places. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the gluten-free bread today. I'm sorry. Um, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, but usually we have that for people as well. Um, but but that's, what we, that's what we do. This is for believers. If you're not a believer, we encourage you that this would be a serious time just to say, you know what, I don't need to participate in that. I'm not really sure about who Jesus is. You're really welcome to be here. We'd love to have you here. But you might just choose not to, because this is making a statement. This is reaffirming a covenant. This is saying, this is what I believe. This is what I trust. Okay? So that's what we'll do.